0: Yeah. I would say almost everything I do now is based kind of on the framework that I use for preparing for a race. So a lot of times it's picking a goal of like, where do I, and it can be long or short, but picking a goal or target of what it is I'm trying to achieve. And then rather than just kind of like going through the motions to try to get there or throwing stuff out there and hoping it works I start kind of like reverse engineering the process that needs to be done to get there so that I have like small objectives along the way. So like if I have a goal to like say record X number of podcasts or coach X number of uh, clients per year or something like that, then like that's the big goal. That's the target I'm trying to hit by the end of the year. But now what do I do on the daily basis to make that goal a reality? Because none of this stuff happens with one day's work. It's the culmination of all of it.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Zach Bitter. Zach is an endurance athlete and coach. Zach has broken multiple world and American records throughout his career and still holds the record for the fastest American 100-mile time. Zach has helped hundreds of runners reach their personal goals. Today, I take the combo down a different path and dive deep into the mindset of Zach, and he reveals some of his top tips that you can apply to most anything in life. You often hear life compared to running a race, and after this conversation, you will understand why. We talk about discipline, perseverance, failure, dealing with negative thoughts, setting and achieving goals, and much more. So let's get this conversation going, and welcome Zach Bitter to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a bunch for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you, and one of the things that I'm really interested to know is that I would imagine that being somebody like yourself who does hundred mile races and you compete and you've done this at a competitive level for quite some time, either during training or even during some of these races, I'm guessing that there are times when negative thoughts creep in and they have the potential to bring you down and cause you in a way to either slow down your pace, lose the race, stop the race, whatever the case may be. And what I want to know from you is like, what are the steps that you take to destroy some of these negative thought patterns that come in your way when you're running a race?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, what maybe differentiates running, say, 100 miles versus like a 5-kilometer race the most outside of just the obvious is like when you uh, have a thought go through your head in a 5K, you sort of respond to it and then don't think about it again until afterwards because everything is kind of coming at you so fast, you don't really have a chance to second-guess yourself in live. Whereas in a 100-mile race, if you make a mistake or if you're doubtful of something you're doing or questioning your likelihood of reaching a goal or a target, you have nothing but time and headspace to kind of think, overthink, and possibly allow that to kind of go down a negative path. So really what I try to do going into a race as well as during a race is just sort of arm myself with different, I don't know if I call them mantras, but like thought processes where that I am able to kind of more or less minimize what I'm trying to do or rationalize what I'm trying to do as is achievable versus insurmountable. And that can be something as simple as just trying to minimize what I'm doing. You know, it's easy to be like 30, 40 miles into a hundred mile race and overthink that 60, 70 miles you have left just due to the kind of the nature of that lengthy of a distance. But when you think of it in the grand scheme of things, in terms of like how long it took you to prep, you know, you probably spent four or six months, maybe just like putting in you know, training day after day, leading into that, and you know, finding yourself partway through a race, you're actually much closer to finishing than it may look. So, thinking of it that way, where including the training with that mindset process is helpful. Uh, pre-race stuff too, just like I like to use kind of race-specific workouts, which for 100 miles tend to be kind of these lengthy long runs and, and sometimes back-to-back editions of that. Just give you an opportunity to kind of like practice that sort of uh visualization process of like what you want to do when you're deep into the race and where you want your head to be what kind of things are you going to want to think of what do you want to focus on and i find doing that sort of visualization and training really helps my ability to kind of just execute when i'm in those situations versus overthink makes it maybe a little more intuitive which Which is maybe the biggest one of the biggest roles with 100 miles is you're just never going to get anywhere close to that distance in training. So you're closing a big gap between your longest long run and the distance itself. Generally speaking, I think a lot of people in the all training community too, it's like the theme is when things get hard to wrap your head around, you need to minimize the target. So that might mean rather than thinking about getting to the finish line or getting to the next aid station or some mile marker that's down the road, You know, it can be something as little as, all right, I'm just going to like get to that tree in the distance. Or if I'm on a track, I'm just going to get around this one lap and then I'm going to worry about the rest later. So giving yourself like bite-sized objectives can oftentimes help. And one thing that also helps too is if you experience enough, you kind of realize that there's this ebb and flow that kind of comes with it. Where just because something's bad at one point doesn't mean it's going to get progressively worse like you would maybe think intuitively would happen. In reality, like you can continue the same activity that got you into that spot and you could be in a very positive place later. So you get enough experiences where you kind of break through some of those lows. You kind of know if you do give in to the negativity that you've got prior experience to show that there is a possibility to get through that and that you have to be willing to sacrifice that if you're going to like drop out or slow down and give up on a goal when you kind of have that sort of information available to you.
1: And it seems like you have all this pretty much like dialed in now, but maybe in the past, like what has been like a negative thought or a limiting belief that maybe continued to creep in either during your training, when you were prepping for a race or during a race earlier on in your career? And how did you overcome that and transform that into something positive?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think really the hard part is, I guess, early on and even more so now, sometimes to a degree is just picking a goal that is realistic, but also gives you the opportunity to try to find your full potential. So there is like a fairly like thin line between, say, putting myself in a spot where I'm going to have a negative outcome because I got out too fast or something like that. So I think really like trying to understand like the training and what it can produce from a result standpoint is a big one for me, because if I know that a certain type of training is going to put me in a position to target a specific split range or a certain like fitness indicator within the plan is a good indication that like a certain target range is going to be achievable. Then I can kind of trust that and then not necessarily overthink it because I've already confirmed in my mind. Early on though, some, to some degree it can be easier too, because you get got a little bit of ignorance is bliss where you don't know what you're getting into. And you know, when I first did my, you know, my first hundred miler, I think my mindset wasn't like, am I going to finish this? It was like. Well, how fast can I run this? And I think having that sort of naivety to it can also feed into it. And then you kind of got to get through some of that middle territory where you're still learning, but you also know what's coming up too, which can be a hurdle for some people to get over. Right, right. I mean, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine
1: that the more races you've run, like the more records you've set, like the more pressure there is, right, to perform. And I'm sure that can be challenging. I wanna ask you, I know at one point you held the hundred mile world record and then you sent somebody else like beat you and it took that from you. And a lot of people, they have trouble with failure, they have trouble with loss. How have you been able to accept that as part of the process and not let that like stop you
0: from continuing to run? Yeah, it's a good question. I think for me, when I got into running, I got into running at a pretty early age and my success within the ultra running side of things is above and beyond what I achieved in some of the the shorter distance stuff. So perhaps I kind of had like built in expectations of like, there's people who are faster than me out there. And, you know, that never kind of putting yourself in a position where you think like you're going to, set a record and have it never get broken, I think is step one. And when I first decided like targeting the 100 mile world record was a goal of mine, I think at first I thought a little bit more about that being kind of the primary objective. But it took me long enough to actually get to the point where I broke the record that by the time I got there, I had sort of uh, evolved and kind of where my goals and my passions were for that particular pursuit to um, being maybe a little bit more interested in just finding how fast I can run a hundred miles given you know the the context of the type of race versus trying to hold on to some world record which even if I were to go and re break it, it's gonna get rebroken again at some point. So at a certain point it dawned on me that like, you know, if your motivation is purely to break and hold on to to records that versus just being kind of like a step in history of at one point in time, I furthered the advancement of how fast a human can cover a hundred miles. Once it gets beyond that, you're painting yourself into like inevitable misery. If you're just clinging to something that's never going to be permanently yours anyway. Right. And along the, those same lines, like a lot of times I
1: would guess in your sport, like success can be gauged based on time, based on standings, based on records, based on speed. How are you able to? You know, not succumb to paying attention to all of that, even like during your runs. like how do you gauge success in a way that's more or less controllable and healthy for you?
0: Yeah, I like to when i'm when I'm actually doing the training itself, like I'm thinking about race day and stuff to some degree, but there's also like kind of dual thoughts going on there too, where I have objectives that I'm trying to hit during different phases of training. and I follow approach where especially when I'm doing like a hundred miles, I'm a little more focused on like a specific intensity as the primary goal and really fine tuning that for usually between like 4 to 6 weeks before kind of moving on and kind of working my way to being more specific to the to the actual distance I'm going to race. So there's there's like kind of fun progress things that you can kind of do on a daily or weekly or even like multi-week basis that you can kind of gauge the progression you've had, you can compare it to previous workouts that you did in other blocks and I really do enjoy that side of the sport of the, just the kind of, okay, I'm starting this new project where I'm going to try to, you know, maybe run my fastest hundred mile time or whatever it happens to be. And then kind of laying the scaffolding of that plan out and then looking at where the little benchmarks are along the way that I'm going to use to kind of motivate me to stay consistent and then find those kind of wins. And really what I think that does is by the time I get to the end of the training and I'm ready to race, even if I would, have a terrible day on on race day. I enjoyed that process enough from kind of the gamification of creating those small uh, uh, goals and objectives in there throughout the course of it that I can feel confident walking away that I probably learned some new things, reassured myself about some old things, and really did enjoy my time doing it. And therefore, it's not as much of a like a all stakes on this one day post four to six months of preparation. To this date, I think I still enjoy that. I, I, I like to say like the day I don't enjoy doing the – or acquiring the small wins in training will probably be the day that I no longer want to prepare at least at a – for an ultramarathon in a specific performance-based like framework because that's really where the – I think the, the incentive to keep doing it is, is are you enjoying it on the day-to-day versus just trying to find like glory on one day after half a year of hard work. Right. And I've also heard you say that
1: like race day is essentially like a celebration of all of your hard work. Like how has adopting that mindset like helped you, you know, embrace the process like more than the outcome?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Looking at it through that lens definitely kind of helps you when you get to the race day, not necessarily like overemphasize that as more than it actually is. Obviously we all prefer to have, uh, hit our eight goals on race day if, if possible, but, uh, Kind of like what I said before, if that's your only motivation or only incentive, you're sort of driving yourself into a such a black and white scenario where the whole thing was either worth it or not worth it. And your attitude and your, your emotions and your level of just excitement for the sport in general, I think is going to dip over time if that's the only motivator. Because at the end of the day, there's only so many of these we can do in a year. So even if they all go really well, it's a pretty small fraction of the... Of the year to be kind of focused on. And when I think when you look at it that way too, it gives you kind of the positive energy to be excited to be there versus feeling like it's some sort of like big overreaching job that's going to be very difficult to do. And anytime you can paint yourself into a positive mental framework, I think you're going to do yourself favor later in the in the race. I like I like to look at the races both like physically and mentally where you you sort of have like a physical limitation, but you also have mental a mental limitation of how much kind of stress and thought process you can put on before you just run out of mental bandwidth to be able to kind of continue to push hard when it's tough. So, if I'm sitting there the days leading into the race thinking of this race being the end all be all and then the early stage of the race, my I'm just riddled with anxiety about how, in, how I have to execute this day or it's all a waste. I'm going to paint myself into a position where I'm almost guaranteed to have a subpar day because by the time I get to the point in the race where it gets really tough mentally, I'll have already kind of expended all that energy and I won't have any less anything else to give.
1: I want to dive into that more because it kind of touches on what we kind of started our conversation with, which is, you know, breaking like the negative thought patterns and and stuff like that. But like when you're in the midst of this race, it's a long race. I mean, we're not talking about a 5k, we're talking about a hundred mile race. And like you said, you only have so much mental bandwidth. And I think people listening to this, they're like, man, I would never even consider running a marathon, let alone a hundred miles based on the fact that I would simply just get bored while doing it. So what are some of the like mental tricks that help you during these races so that you don't run out of mental bandwidth, and you can keep yourself like engaged, you can keep yourself focused, you can keep yourself motivated throughout the course of a 100-mile race. If you suffer from digestive issues like gas, bloating, cramping, even when you're eating healthy, nutritious foods, then you could probably benefit from a high-quality enzyme. If you've never tried enzymes, or even if you've tried and they haven't worked, I want you to give this one a chance. As you know, I'm a big fan of the company Optimizers. They are one of the few supplement companies who have the best formulations and use the highest quality ingredients and their products work. I asked them if we could organize a great deal for all of my listeners and they over delivered. Right now you can get a bottle of Mazymes for free. All you need to do is pay a small shipping fee and there's no catch. There's no tricks, no forced continuity and nothing to cancel. They are so confident in their products that they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee, so I'm positive you'll be satisfied with the results. Mazymes is a 17-enzyme full-spectrum formula, plus it contains all the key enzymes needed for optimal digestion. So many individuals suffer from digestive issues because any protein your body doesn't break down can lead to digestive distress, gas, bloating, and constipation. Mazymes can help ensure that all the protein that you consume breaks down into absorbable amino acids. So I strongly suggest that you head on over to their site to grab your bottle before they either run out or take down this offer. Go to mazymescom slash dougfree, that's dot com forward slash free, which is all one word, and you will automatically get access to your unique coupon code to claim your free bottle. Limit one per household. Offer is valid while supplies last. You're going to love their products. So go now. Now let's get back to the show.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons that I like to uh, give a lot of thought to kind of the training because the more I'm kind of thinking about things in a little bit of a deeper manner with the workouts versus just going out and doing them and hoping or you don't have have to hope you can tangibly like assess whether the physiological adaptations are taking place. But rather than just looking at it purely through that lens, if I look at it through like what else can I get from this workout outside of the actual physical work that it is, you get a sense of just being able to sort of put yourself in a position where you're a little bit more able to go on cruise control on race day because you just know the intensity so well. You can kind of dial it up and then not overthink certain things that could kind of burn some of that mental bandwidth. So when I'm really executing well, the actual act of like running the pace I'm trying to hit sorta of comes a little more naturally or with less thought to it. And then I'm kind of, I free my mind to think about other things like positive aspects of maybe just being grateful for being being able to be at the starting line of a race or being able to be in a position to uh, run professionally reflecting on a lot of the stuff that went well or the, the the training in general. I think like when you take inventory of that stuff, then you just have more information to pull from that is going to maybe be positive on race day that, that will allow you to do it. And then really another one that's kind of powerful for me too, is you sort of have these breakthrough races throughout your career where you sort of push past what you thought you were previously capable of. And you take inventory on that sort of stuff too. You can kind of think about, that as a way to like a space filler of just like you know every step you take or every mile you go you're like one step closer to potentially having that same outcome where you're up against a previous bar that you've hit and you have a chance to go past it and you know for me a big one in my career was in in 2015 I was going after the 100 mile world record and was on pace through eight I was actually ahead of pace through 80 miles but then the last 20 I fell off so that memory kind of stuck with me and gave me like this thing to focus on more or less, whether it be in training or in future races of, all right, if I can get myself back to that position, but this time execute differently, you give yourself like this thing to focus on that that you can draw motivation from that maybe definitely wouldn't have been there had you not had that experience. So I think a lot of it is just being aware of both the things that are happening in your training in previous races and really taking time to reflect on those so that you actually have those available to you without having to dig too deep into your mind to find them because you've already processed them and kind of put them in that Rolodex of thoughts that you're going to use to motivate you on race day. Yeah. and, And speaking of like, and along the same lines of what we're
1: talking about now, and I think this is a great mindset hack is perspective. So like, how are you able to like zoom out and pay attention to the bigger picture when like a race maybe doesn't go as well as planned. And the reason I bring this up is because a lot of people that listen to my show, they struggle with adversity. They struggle with failure and they lose a job. They get out of a relationship. They have some personal failure and that ends up like stopping them from pursuing the next thing. So what have been some of your best practices to zoom out, focus on the bigger picture and not let a race where you underperformed stop you?
0: Yeah. I think, you know, the, Bad races or the races where more goes wrong, they tend to provide more of a lens into kind of what the next step is. When I really nail a race, it becomes a little more hard to like decide, well, what can I do to improve? Because you're sort of, you don't have a lot of options to pick from in terms of where can I gain some time here or what can I do differently in training to optimize a certain part of the race that I already perceive as going quite well. Uh, The ones that go poorly, I think, highlight some of that stuff where. You know, maybe it's something where it was a deficit that you normalized, but you didn't have any indication for that until the race presented you with a situation where that deficit actually became problematic. You know, those are sort of things that I like to look for. Some of it's just like also just like pacing too. And a lot of races Yeah. I mean, you can do a variety of different terrains, which make it a little more difficult to do this. So you have to lean a little bit more on intensity, but just learning like, well, if I did a race and I had a big positive split, well, chances are that means I went out faster than I should have based on my fitness that day. So then the next question becomes, what can I do in training to make that early start pace sustainable for the duration of that race or Do I need to just reimagine kind of my pacing strategy on race day so that I find myself in a position where I'm not overreached with enough distance left that I pay for it twofold at the end because I'm slowing down so much and those sort of things. Though another one that kind of also is a little bit in hindsight type of a learning experience is you do have these races where you hit a spot that previously would have been a limiter for you and you break through it. And you look at that as a win in the sense that you just kind of you made progress, you broke through a plateau that you would normally limit you in the past. But then you also need to reflect on, well, what was it that I did differently to get through that, as well as what was it I was doing wrong in those races where I wasn't able to do that. In order to have kind of the race that you ended up having in in previous, you can kind of also kind of go back and reassess things that you maybe had already worked through to some degree, but you didn't have all the answers yet because you needed that kind of race result confirmation of a better result to really show that it worked the way you thought it did, or maybe it was something different that you learned from that too. Yeah, that's such a great perspective to
1: have. And I know that running, obviously, from a physical and fitness perspective has helped you out tremendously. In what ways has your running career uh, helped you out in your personal life and other areas of your life that don't require you to run necessarily?
0: Yeah, I would say almost everything I do now is based kind of on the framework that I use for preparing for a race. So a lot of times it's picking a goal of like, where do I, and it can be long or short, but picking a goal or target of what is I'm trying to achieve. And then rather than just kind of like going through the motions to try to get there or throwing stuff out there and hoping it works, I start kind of like reverse engineering the process that needs to be done to get there so that I have like small objectives along the way. So like if I have a goal to like say record X number of podcasts or coach X number of uh, clients per year or something like that, then like that's the big goal. That's the target I'm trying to hit by the end of the year. But now what do I do on the daily basis to make that goal a reality? Because none of this stuff happens with one day's work. It's the culmination of all of it. And then you can start to kind of build a scaffolding around, well, if this is where I want to be in a year, where do I want to be each quarter? If this is where I want to be each quarter, where do I want to be each month? If this is where I want to be each month, week. And then eventually you kind of have it to a point where, you know, maybe it's every month that you're building out the daily part of that. And then you're making small adjustments where there's kind of following that same scaffolding that you originally kind of put in place. And that's going to kind of be that blueprint or that compass that guides you in terms of how you kind of move through that. And I find like, just like with the races, anytime you can build in those small wins throughout the process, that's what kind of keeps me motivated, keeps me consistent. And when I'm motivated and consistent, I'm going to likely hit my benchmarks more precisely. And then the culmination of all those being hit precisely is going to get me to my goal, either quicker or more efficiently. Mm.
1: And I think a, a big thing that plays into being able to set and achieve goals is discipline. And a lot of people, they struggle with discipline, whether it's with running, whether it's with weightlifting, whether it's in, in their personalized, whatever it is. Like, discipline is so hard. Like, what are your, some of your top tips or what are some of the things that you
0: help your coaching clients do to
1: develop a level of self discipline?
0: Yeah, I think discipline is oftentimes, you can have a casualty of poor discipline if you are either putting, a big goal out there that is not broken down the way I just described, because like you might get, I mean, this is like the new year's resolution phenomenon, right? Someone says, I want to lose X number of pounds, or I want to, you know, complete this race or get this level of fitness, whatever it happens to be. And I mean, that's a great starting point, but that's what it is, is a starting point. If you, are going to rely on that one big end goal to motivate you in the same way it did when you first decided to do it on january 1st you're going to find by february you have a little less motivated by march you have a little less you know by it just gets diminishes and diminishes and then you add to it things that don't go according to plan maybe you when you decided that you took it a step further and decided the route here is going to the gym three days a week but then you have a couple weeks in a row where you miss two of those workouts and now all of a sudden you're getting this like this this signal that, hey, I'm not consistent, I failed, therefore, what's the point? You bail out to it altogether and you find yourself, you know, a quarter or a third away through the year, like not even having that goal in, in sight any longer or as something you're targeting. So I think like when you, when you really want to find that success, building in those small goals so that that consistency remains there, and then knowing that there are gonna be times where even a perfectly laid plan is going to have times where you deviate from it and you have to learn from those. So like then when you do miss one workout, it isn't like, okay, I missed this workout, therefore I failed. It's I missed this workout. But if I look back at the last three months, I have well documented that I've been consistent. And this is the first one I really missed. So I need to look at the totality of what I've done so far versus this one problem, and then move forward from there. I think that makes it easier to both learn from mistakes as well as not overreact to how much they weigh on you because no one great day in the gym or poor day in the gym or one bad day at work or great day at work is likely going to define the entirety of your year. So kind of putting it in that perspective, I think, is oftentimes like a big step in terms of kind of staying motivated enough to be consistent and really really that's it. And everyone's gonna be a little different on how much of that they need. I mean, some people can can have like longer, longer goals and stay motivated by them for longer. Other people can't. So I think a lot of times it's just being honest with yourself. So like if you're the type of person who needs a lot of like constant reinforcement, then structuring whatever your strategy is to have those that reinforcement built in. And you know, for me, I mean, that can be something as simple as like, if I need to know that I'm being productive during a day or something like that, And I'm struggling with that. Like it might be something as simple as I'm going to write down everything I want to do, even if it's just like, you know, rearrange my office so that it's more efficient or something. So I can check a win off. And I think once you start checking wins off, even if they're like kind of arbitrary, just the act of doing that, I think, spirals into wanting more. Running kind of has this appeal to it, too, where like, you know, you hit a new milestone, in a workout or a certain number of miles per week. And doing that incentivizes you to take that next step. But without that step, you would have never gotten to that following one or been in position to do it. So sometimes it's looking for wins within that that are going to be easy that you know you can get yourself to do even when you're like really unmotivated so that you kind of get that ball rolling. And and then I think it kind of snowballs is is probably the way to look at it. Yeah,
1: small wins add up. Small wins add up to big wins, staying consistent, doing things even when you're not feeling motivated, having a sense of perspective all that all those things are so important when it comes to you know setting and achieving a goals like you just mentioned and what stops a lot of people is they often will feel intimidated by something like like somebody running a mile might be it might be super intimidating to somebody to run a mile where for you it was probably super intimidating to run your first 100 mile race and for somebody else it could be intimidating to go into their first yoga class and go i can go on and on with examples like what have been some of your best practices to dial back the fear a little bit and continue to do something even though you felt fairly intimidated
0: Yeah, I love short intervals for this particular lesson because it seems like no matter how many like sessions I do with it, it plays out in a fairly similar way. And you know, it might be like an example I like to use is like I'll do these intervals where it's like two minutes on, two minutes off, where I'm going hard for two minutes and then really easy for two minutes. I'm usually targeting like somewhere in the neighborhood of like eight to 10 of them. So let's say I'm doing 10 of them. Like clockwork, when I get to three, I'm going to start doubting that I can do seven more. And if I just let that doubt sink in, the likelihood of me saying, well, eight's probably fine, and then stopping at eight, and then regretting that I didn't finish the workout later in the day, and beating myself up over it, I go from, well, I'm at three, let's just do four and not think of five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 yet, and then just focus on one at a time. And you start doing that, and you really teach yourself to kind of narrow in on what's the first step I need to take in order to complete this goal, and let's only think about that step that just prepares you kind of like what I was talking about before to more intuitively do that without thinking about it, where you almost kind of take that view of the task at hand by default versus having to like force yourself to think that way. And then when you get to like a race or you have a big project for whatever work you're doing, you sort of end up doing that same thing where you might think like, well, I got these 10 things I have to finish in order to reach this milestone in my career But if I'm thinking about how hard eight, nine, and 10 are going to be when I'm on step two or three, I'm never going to get to eight, nine, and 10. So I really do have to kind of like zoom in on what the big goal is and kind of focus on those smaller ones and take it that one at a time. And I think there's lessons to learn in that, whether you're doing that in a workout or whether you're doing that with like your career or any, any objective that takes more than one step to complete. I want to get into like
1: the progression, like the journey of your running career, because for many people, like they might just, their goal might be to end up just running a 5K and it might start with them, you know, slowly beginning to like walk a little bit. Then they are able to jog, run, and then they work their way up until they run that 5K. But for you, you've gotten to the point where you've not just run 100 miles, you've set world records. Like, where did this all start for you and how did the distances continue to progress as your running career evolved?
0: Yeah, I think one of the reasons why I'm still running today is because I didn't overthink it early or it, essentially I was ignorant enough where I couldn't really overthink it. Yeah, you know, I did my first endurance event in middle school in our class at the presidential physical fitness and you know really that was my first insight that running distance was a sport that that was different from other sports, you know, in my mind back then it was like you're either good, you're an athletic, or you're not. And if you're good, you're gonna. that's going to translate to sprinting, long distance, basketball, everything, baseball, football, everything that has an athletic component to it. And that's where I kind of got a bit more of a look at to like, oh, well, my one classmate just embarrassed me in the shuttle run, but I beat him by like over a minute in the mile. It was kind of like a, a conflict of my worldview at the time. And from there, I didn't really overthink it much other than just like, oh, I guess I'm good at that and maybe not at that. Uh, but was still very curious in doing other sports and other things. So I didn't let that kind of like all consume me and invest too much of my identity in running yet at that age. And really it wasn't until I got to kind of my senior year in high school where I started really thinking of myself as like a runner, as part of my identity. And then it wasn't until college until I really decided to kind of learn what it was to be a runner, in terms of like, well, if I do this workout, this is the type of result I'm trying to get, or this is the order of operations in order to properly prepare for like this distance, and and start asking those questions of like, why are we doing this versus we're doing it because the coach told us to, and presumably that's going to make us faster, and, you know. And from there, I just kind of like started to once I kind of knew the the idea behind different workouts and things, I was also able to kind of assess like what parts of the sport I enjoyed the most and you know, that got me thinking along the lines of like, what workout intensities did I look forward to the most? What really keeps me motivated to keep showing up. And for me, the long run was one that kind of really stood out. So after college, I started kind of building out the volume of my running to the point where I was consistently running like 100 mile weeks. And, and that kind of led me to ultra marathon more or less. So it was sort of like a, trajectory that was never well defined until it was and then once it was defined and to the sense where I realized I wanted to focus my my energies on training for ultra marathons versus you know Olympic distance things I was already kind of prepared to take that step without doing maybe too much too soon or placing too much of my identity or my self-worth into it so that I had the opportunity to show up and be willing to fail because if I failed it wasn't that I you know, it wasn't like a shot to my identity. It was just like a curiosity that I was trying to explore. You know, and that led to the point where like I started putting up some results that were capable of getting sponsorships and people reaching out for coaching and things like that. So I think every time I've kind of taken a step within my running career, it was sort of blinded from the end goal of at the time of what I have now. And then by the time I did start thinking about like maybe I could be a professional runner, And what do I need to build around that career so it's sustainable? I had already like kind of taken a bunch of steps that would have maybe been daunting or overwhelming when I was younger had I thought like from, say, age 10, I want to be a professional runner. I'm guessing what's obviously one of the big things that's kept you like going this long
1: and doing it so consistently and so successfully is your ability to stay healthy. And my question around this is how do you decipher between knowing if it's just like your mind or some of the negative thoughts that we've talked about throughout this conversation, like telling you to slow down, telling you to change your pace, telling you to stop the race or whatever it is versus like you actually needing to slow down and adjust
0: your pace or even potentially stop the race for the safety of your health. Yeah. I mean, some of it's a little more obvious. Like if I like mess up my nutrition or something like that, and then it's just like, I'm just depleted, dehydrated and that sort of thing. It's like, yeah, that's maybe a physical limitation that I made a mistake that's a little more clear or if I like something gets injured where it's like clear like, oh, I just rolled my ankle and I'm barely able to mobilize it and that's going to be a big limiting factor. You know, those are kind of like clear ones where it's like, oh, I've exceeded the threshold in which I can rebound to this and still get any of the goals I set out for myself. At that point, I'm usually like, okay, this is probably an opportunity to you know, step off, limit damage, reassess where I'm at. If it's an injury related thing, get healthy before I kind of take on the next project. Those tend to be a little more clear. The hard ones are kind of like what you said, where it's like, you know, you're running along and you kind of have a little bit of self-doubt that you're maybe running a little too fast and you start noticing your splits slowing down and then you're left with this like decision to make. Do I really hunker in and try to get back on pace or was this pace unsustainable and I just overemphasized what I thought I was capable of at the onset and slowing down is a reality now because the fitness just isn't there to, to maintain the intensity. And, and that one probably happens more often than, than any other ones at this point in my career, just because I've had enough opportunity to have really good races and see like where kind of peak is when I'm really hitting on all cylinders. So then you do have the advantage of kind of knowing what you did to get there, but, 100 miles is a long ways and things don't always play out the exact same way as they did the time prior. So there's a little bit of uncertainty that can sometimes lead to you know a, a bad race because of fitness just not being quite where you expected it to be. Or, or it could even just be like, you know I made a mistake tactically where I went a little too fast for a certain section of the race for whatever reason and I end up paying for that. And prior pacing strategies, even though they were consistent with the average splits, were more cleanly laid out or laid out in a way that were less detrimental to you know, my race, uh, you know, going sideways, so to speak. But I mean, some of it too, it's just like, you don't know for sure either. So, you know, like, do you do ask yourself sometimes, like, you know, I drop out because I assumed I went out too fast, or maybe I don't drop out, but I slow down significantly. And you do have kind of a little bit of a subjective question and answer to ask yourself is like, was it that I wasn't physically fit enough to keep that pace? Or did I just have a mental lapse and wasn't able to do it? And really, you can sometimes clarify that a little bit in the future, kind of like what I said before, where they will maybe like the next race you go and you push past that mental barrier and you realize, oh, that was a mental hurdle I couldn't get over versus a physical one. You do learn from those, I think. And I would say like with when it comes to ultra running, minus like a really egregious pacing strategy, more often than not, it's a mental a mental lapse as far as I'm concerned for, for me and everyone else for that matter. It's like a lot of times I think like there's a little bit of like, you know, getting out too fast in general in the ultra running community, I think. But even if you're working from that template, I think there's a lot of more like kind of mental hurdles that don't get cleared versus physical hurdles. That's the game of life, man.
1: It's just being able to like subdue these mental hurdles, these mental barriers and and taking a step out of running for a second, like outside of running, what has been like a mental barrier or two in the last few years that you've had to face and, and how have you overcome it?
0: Yeah, I mean, for me personally, like I've been really fortunate that for the majority of my running career outside of, uh, I missed a season of track, indoor and outdoor track and field due to injury, my first year competing at the collegiate level. But other than that, like my ultra running career had been like quite injury free. I'd had a a couple issues, only one that ever kept me from getting to a goal race. Last year in August, I injured my, my right ankle and rehabbed it and then actually trained and did a race, but then reaggravated it, which ended up, uh, you know, costing me a race mid this year when I had to basically start back over from where I had been in August, but with maybe a little more of a conservative approach and make sure I got it completely taken care of before building back up, building back a little differently than I normally would, structuring my training and my kind of training protocol a little differently to make sure that that situation got addressed. So, I mean, I missed a good deal of, training and racing that I normally would have done, which is obviously, you know, not something that you look forward to, but are certainly things you can learn from in terms of like, well, what was I doing that got me to that place in the first place? And how do I make sure I don't do that again so that I don't have future years that are like that? For me, I've maybe compounded a little bit because it kind of sort of happened at the end of the pandemic where, you know, there was a limited racing during the pandemic for like uncontrollable reasons from a physical standpoint and then you kind of roll that into a physical issue where now your body's saying, no, it does give you a little bit more of a lengthy time frame between when you were kind of training and racing the way you want to where you are now. So thankfully I'm going to be doing a race in December that will hopefully get me back on track for next year to be kind of more consistent with the way I like to prepare for races, which is a sort of picking maybe two or three goal races per year that I'm going to more or less like try to wring myself dry and then sprinkling in like a handful of, uh, ultra marathons that are gonna be less like goal races but more like high quality long run stimuluses and when I can do that I feel like that's where I'm kind of in a in a groove that has me ready for race day without kind of burning myself out in training and yeah so but that's been a definitely a new thing for me to kind of deal with because I'd never had an injury that sort of lingered around for as long as this one did before having kind of a resolution to it and I think most runners will probably agree with me when they say like the worst part about an injury isn't necessarily that you have to take X number of weeks or months off. It's not knowing where that timeline begins and ends is where people really kind of get deterred from it. So yeah, I mean, that was uh, definitely a learning, learning experience for me even kind of later in my career. So how did what you
1: just said impact you from mentally and emotionally? And how did you deal with all that uncertainty that you were facing?
0: Yeah, I think for me, it was more just you know, taking it as an opportunity to both uh, say, okay, well, I'm gonna have an opportunity to kind of like reset anything that else that was maybe lingering behind, or discover like where some weaknesses are that led to it, and address those and make sure they don't become problematic. I think a lot of times when you are as passionate about something as, as I am with running, you can sort of normalize things sometimes that are like less than ideal. You get sort of narrowly focused on the task at hand and it's a little easier to kind of make an excuse when something's not, not ideal. But then you have an injury like that, and you have nothing but time to reflect on what's there and what's not there. For me, it was like assessing just like, what kind of elements, whether it be like strength and mobility, do I need to kind of have consistently in my plan, versus maybe even just like the threshold at which I can reach with like specific types of training, like long run development and stuff like that, so that I don't, injure myself. But, But also like one thing I've always tried to do, and part of this is just kind of my own personality is just like, I've never really like been super like into thinking of being just like training and racing as my sole endeavor. I've always liked to do other things too. So like building out my coaching business and podcasting and things like that have always also been really fun things for me to do. So then when I do have a situation like I did this last year where I get injured, it's like, yeah, it's a bummer. I have to kind of put a pause on my ambitions there and reassess how I'm preparing and taking care of myself. So I have future races to put on the schedule. And it also gives me more time to kind of focus my energies on some of those other things that sometimes have a little bit more of a finite time frame to be able to be experienced as well. So I think, you know, my advice to people is if you have a passion, consider having some, some fun alternatives when things like that do happen, because you don't want to be like, sulking around and doing nothing. Cause that's just going to like send you into a negative spiral. That's not going to be good for your own, your own mental health. Yeah. If you have your whole identity wrapped up in something
1: like a sport that in many cases, you don't have control over a lot of what can happen. I mean, you're setting yourself up for potentially a, a massive disaster if you're not careful. And I want to talk about, you mentioned like a few minutes ago, times where you just knew you weren't physically prepared for a race, like your nutrition was off or whatever. And it felt, and it felt like it was causing you to slow down. And I think a lot of times in life, people, they don't pursue something. They don't try something because they feel like they're just not ready. They feel like they're underqualified. Is there a race that comes to mind for you where you felt like a bit underqualified? Maybe you, you didn't think you prepared as well as you could have, but on the other side of that came some
0: level of success that you weren't expecting? There's some where I'm still answering that question, and there's ones where I think I have to some degree. You know, one that really stood out, I early on in my career, I did this race a couple of years in a row called the JFK 50 Mile, and it's a race profile that kind of matches my skill sets well enough. But I just had really bad execution the first two times and missed my potential by a fairly large margin. So I ended up not going back to that race for a few years, but then in 2019. I had a race that actually didn't go well, which gave me an opportunity to to jump into that race again. And that time I felt like I executed it almost as perfectly as I could, given where my fitness was at at the time. And that was a really good kind of like confidence booster in the sense that like, you know, there's this course that had kind of uh, fooled me a couple of times in terms of like how I should tactically race it and prepare for it. And then, you know, kind of solving that riddle is just a little bit extra kind of excitement with that. You know, another one was... um, there's my, my biggest weakness with kind of trail and ultra running. Cause I do like to get off the track and the road from time to time and do some of the trail stuff too, is like technical technical trail and specifically technical downhill running is always like kind of a, a skill set I have to really kind of start early to kind of make sure I have it developed enough to be able to like really reach my potential on a course that has that sort of terrain and I trained for a race called the San Diego hundred in 2019 that had a lot of loose rock and technical terrain on it. That I knew I was going to have to prepare for, so I kind of set out a little earlier than I normally would to prepare for that one, and made sure I had like the ankle strength and the skill set to kind of run on that sort of terrain a little bit more effectively than I would have in the past. It made that weakness, at least for like a, a time period, a lot a lot less obvious, and uh, you know that always feels good too when you can you know, take something that is normally going to maybe deter you from even doing a race and turn it into enough of a skill that you feel confident in going out there and testing your limits on it for that. There's a couple of races where I really would like to kind of further explore that and hopefully be able to talk about those being successes long-term. One is the Western States 100. It was my first hundred miler and I've done it twice, but neither time that I did it, I feel like I really executed it well. So I'd like to get back to that one and see if I can really feel like I walk off the course like knowing that I really kind of both prepared and executed on race day the way that I think I can. Another one that is maybe even more obvious is the the 24-hour, which is this event where you just see how far you can run in a 24-hour time frame. I've done that race a few times, often as kind of like a little bit of a last minute. Like, I think I got one race left in me. I'm going to try jumping this and see how it goes. So like one year where I trained very specifically for it, but none of them have gone well at all. So <laughs> that one is a little bit more of a... Uh, like a large margin of improvement left on it, but it's definitely one where I'm still excited about and want to kind of figure out where my limitations are at. And speaking of like gaining perspective and
1: looking towards the future to to see how you can improve upon your, your running career, like what's next for you? I know, like, I know you've obviously you've set world records, you've set us records. Like, are you still in pursuit of trying to re-break that world record? Like what's next for you in your running career?
0: Yeah. So a couple things. I'm still very much interested in kind of fast runnable 100 milers, including the world record there. There's a few things that I've kind of got on the horizon. I'm going to be doing the Brazos 100 mile, which is like a very like it's basically a dirt road more or less. It's technically billed as a trail or an off-road course, but it's very flat, very runnable. Really the only hurdle there is if it gets if it rains the week of, then it gets it turns into a mud puddle versus a racetrack. I've got my fingers crossed that it's dry and it's a racetrack because I think I can possibly break my off-road world best from 2018 there if things go well and weather cooperates. From there, I think next year there's a uh, a couple options. I One would be going back to uh, the Olympic training facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the Pettit Center, where I broke the world record in 2019 for 100 miles and take another swing at the current world record there. The motivator there is two. One, I think, like I can go faster than I did in 2019 when I kind of look at just how that all played out. And the second one is... Uh, The running world over the last like five years or so has experienced a kind of a transition where we have this new shoe technology, which is uh, pretty uh, distinctly of an advantage in terms of how fast you can run in them versus without them. And the only question really is like how much of an advantage does each individual have distances and intensities and things like that? And when I ran the world record in 2019, I hadn't been wearing that shoe technology. So now my shoe sponsor, Ultra Footwear, has has some options that have that tech in it. So I haven't done a real like targeted world record or like 100 mile PR attempt in that shoe technology yet. So there's like also that kind of curiosity around like, you know, what can I do to improve just outright from what I did, regardless of the tech, and then on top of it with, you know, whatever, like, extra time I save with, with the new shoe tech and that sort of thing too. So kind of like I said in the beginning, I'm still like really motivated to kind of test to see where my limitations are. And I don't think I've quite reached in that. So as long as that stays intact, I'll probably keep showing up. I want to dive into the shoe thing. So like, what do you mean like the shoe technology,
1: like what about, like what have they like implemented in these shoes that allows it to be a competitive advantage for runners?
0: Yeah. So basically the way to kind of think about it is historically with running, The firmer and the lower profile the shoe you could get, the more efficient it was gonna be because you're gonna lose less energy into the shoe. So, like, that's this is why, like, if you look at like track races and things, these they would be wearing like racing flats where it's like this thin, hard, like, rubber sole essentially under your foot. It's gonna be very taxing on your feet and lower legs, but for one race, you're looking for all the like benefits you can get from that. So, you sort of just like, that's not gonna you're like your your feet and lower legs in like say a 5k on a track aren't gonna like be the limiting factor. So do you you opt to that really like firm, low profile shoe. So it was basically less cushion, more firm, faster. It was basically kind of the protocol. Then I think it was around 2015, Nike released a prototype of a shoe that had this new midsole compound where it was it sort of reversed the design of a shoe, where now the more cushion you could add to this the better the performance is because this new midsole compound essentially had a higher energy return than even like a barefoot or low profile racing flat would. So it got to the point where now instead of people trying to get into low profile like racing flats, it was a kind of a race to what companies can make this shoe tech with the most cushion possible. And it got super absurd for a while where you would see some shoe prototypes that had like a 60 millimeter stack height. And then they would also put these carbon plates in there. So there was one prototype that actually isn't technically legal because they started regulating it since then. But it had like, I think it was 60 millimeters of of this midsole foam. And I think there was like two or three carbon plates like wedged in there. So it's essentially like a spring loaded shoe. Yeah. So it's like, you know, now there's limitations. I think it's currently at, you can't go past 40 millimeters of stack on a road. Can't go over 25 millimeters of stack on a track surface. But, I mean, the estimates are, like, usually around 4% performance. So, you know, when you're looking at, like, elite running, whether it be the marathon or be the 100 mile or whatever distance happens to be, when we're looking at, like, full percentage points in terms of improvement, you know, you're going from potentially just off the podium to winning a race in some cases. So there's been some obviously growing pains with that sort of thing where, like, you've got the company that originally comes out with the tech. Now all the other companies have to kind of catch up. And then there's also just like uniqueness from one brand to the next in terms of how they actually like how much performance they actually do give you. Then there's also the individual component because like they come to this number. The shoe was actually called the 4% for a while because that was the average improvement that people were getting from it. But when you actually dig into the numbers, it was actually like a range that ended up at 4 So you could have some people that are like maybe lower responders that only get like a 2% advantage. Other people on like the a high end of the average are getting like six plus percent. And it's like, it's a little bit of a, I guess you'd call it a controversy to the degree where it sort of kind of adds this element or this variable that wasn't there before that now can maybe supersede to some degree, just like kind of the raw natural preparation and talent that you would get with minimal technology. But there's also going to be some growth in sport, whether that be through nutrition, through training methodology and equipment that you kind of have to kind of like assume is going to happen if you've done it long enough. So It doesn't seem like this tech is going anywhere anytime soon. So as like a professional athlete, you kind of have to adopt or uh, accept the fact that you're going to have a disadvantage on race day. So is it pretty much like a gold standard for you guys that if you're wanting to,
1: to win a race and be competitive and be on that podium that you have to be running in shoes that
0: contain these technology? Yeah, if it's, a, it's like a world-class event, especially if we're talking about like the marathon, you're not going to see someone winning in a shoe that doesn't have that technology in it. Just because the margin of winning is so small, when you, especially when you get to the marathon where it's whittled down so far, you're talking about like, you know, even someone who's – Above and like you take someone like Kipchoge, who's pretty undisputed the best marathoner ever. Like you take the shoe tech from him and give it to like the guy who finished behind him or two places behind him. That's going to be the difference right there. So it's more or less like a requirement if you're looking for maximum potential. I think maybe when you get into like really long stuff, it's possible that there's enough other opportunities or variables that can also give you an improvement that you could either like supersede that advantage if that variable is going to perform for you but i have a hard time believing that like whatever variable you altered to supersede that would it would conflict with also wearing the shoes which would then put you even further up yet so it sounds, I, I, try, I make it sound kind of like a big negative at times, I think, but you also have like a situation where like maybe less so with the ultra running community, just because the, there hasn't historically been a lot of money in the sport, but certainly at the Olympic distance stuff, like, you know, that sport had had a lot of performance enhancing drug issues, like in the 80s and 90s. And still today, to some degree, testing's gotten better and more frequent and diligent. So you see less of it, but to some degree, people can make the argument like this shoe tech now allows a clean athlete to actually be able to compete with records that were broken with performance enhancing drugs that we just didn't have the testing to clarify, but is pretty common knowledge when you're looking at just like the person's career and like where their pro- their trajectories were and things and just the culture and everything like that. So I mean, that would be the positive element of it is where it kind of like clears the board, so to speak, in terms of like reopening these records as no longer unbreakable, because you had an era where doping was much more prevalent and now you have an era where it's, it's a lot cleaner than it would have been in the past.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm gathering that you're saying is that it's not going to take somebody who would typically finish 50th and then all automatically make them place first. It really matters like within the the top few spots as far as like, like how much of a difference it'll make between you winning first or, or winning third. And, and if you look at like a sport like golf, like I know it's, slightly different but they have technology in their golf balls and in their clubs that help the ball spin more they helps the ball go further so i think it's along lines of the same thing in that these technological advances are helping people just optimize their performance that much better in the sport. Speaking of like just the everyday runner, let's just say somebody who's listening to this and maybe they're, they're looking to run a 5k, maybe they're looking to run a 10k or a half marathon or even a marathon when it comes to shoes. Like you don't have to give specific recommendations, but what are some things that you would have somebody look for in a good running shoe
0: before they go about purchasing one? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, One thing that we can kind of tease out of the literature that's been done on like running shoes is I think with most runners, step one is preventing an injury. So when you look at lowest rate of uh, injury, it's kind of finding a shoe that is right for what you're trying to do. But then once you do that, which one is user identified most comfortable? So a lot of times how this plays out is if you go into like a running shop, they'll have like the employees there, they have a very good understanding of what is available. So you got you as the customer in this situation where there's hundreds of shoes to pick from, they'll assess like your specific mechanics, your gait, your particular foot, and everything like that, and they'll pull say three or four shoes off the out of the back that kind of match that, and then from there it sort of transfers from their responsibility to your responsibility to identify which one feels the best under your foot. From there, you can look at just kind of like how you get to that point, even and. You, know, you have like a lot of different shoe types in terms of like kind of the firmness of the midsole, the softness of the midsole, the amount of cushion or lack thereof. I think another one good starting point oftentimes is like if you have a soft shoe, like a really soft midsole, what that does is when your foot touches the ground, it's a little more relaxed kind of at that point of impact. So those foot muscles, ankle muscles, calf muscles, lower leg stuff, they're just not going to activate quite as directly or as I guess maybe you could say like as as harshly as they would in, say, a firm shoe. So if someone's dealing with a lot of lower leg issues, like an ankle injury, maybe they had like a, a foot issue or a stress fracture or something like that, or they aggravated an Achilles tendon or calf strain, A softer shoe might be good for someone like that because they want to protect that point that is kind of behind due to that that ailment versus someone who's maybe dealing with the opposite problem where like maybe their knees or hips or lower back is giving them trouble. For that person, a firmer shoe may allow that lower leg like their foot, ankle, calf muscles to engage more pronounced and by doing that, absorb more of those impact forces and keep their strike a little more precise so that those impact forces aren't ending up in like their knees and hips and things like that. And then you can have like someone who's healthy, but really wants to kind of optimize things. And when you go through like a full training plan, you have like these ebbs and flows of your body feeling fresh and ready, your body feeling a little bit sore and tired. And you can kind of navigate that stuff with those type of things too. And I, I like to call it like a shoe quiver where you don't necessarily have like one pair of running shoes. You might have a couple or a few where each one kind of has its own unique purpose. Like one might be like your performance-based shoe. One might be a little more firm. So like if you do have an issue where like your knees or hips are bothering you a little bit, you might wear that firmer shoe to kind of keep those areas from getting worked. Or... If like you did a workout and your feet are sore, your calves are sore, then you might want to, you got doing a recovery run. You might want to wear those cushion shoes to kind of protect the area that's, that's giving you the most uh, signal that it needs a little extra time to rest and recover. So that's a big one. other ones are just like, like what is like the relative lift on the shoe. So like shoe running shoes historically have always had like a heel lift in kind of the modern running era where the back half of the shoe is elevated higher than the front half, which sort of puts you in a little bit of an artificial position, which depending on what you're trying to do can be good or bad. Like if you're healthy and you want to have full access to like that range of motion in your Achilles tendon and really kind of have that balanced like posture, you probably don't want that huge kind of heel lift in the back of your shoe. But if you do aggravate your Achilles tendon and you need it to have an opportunity to kind of like take a little bit of pressure off it, you know, that heel lift may be useful for something like that. So sometimes it becomes really individual as to what the person's particular mechanics or potential problems they're dealing with versus being healthy and ready to go kind of works out. And the the topic can kind of be endless from there. You can go like terrain too. Like if I'm running on the roads, I'm going to use like a A road shoe, if it's like a training run, I might want a full rubber outsole because it's going to last longer. I'm not as concerned about the shoe being a little bit heavier. It's going to be able to tolerate like a more variety of training versus I'm doing a workout. Now maybe I want a shoe that has like less rubber on the outsole so it's lighter, but then it's probably not going to last as long. But since it's a performance-based shoe, I might not be too upset about that because I might only be using it like one or two times a week or on races and things like that. It's a lot of great information, man. And I I guess I just
1: think, like you said, just encourage people if they have like a local running store to go in there and check out like not only what they have to offer, but have one of their professionals that work there, like, you know, analyze their gait, their foot and see like what the best approach is going to be for for getting a running shoe and and so zach this has been awesome i love like diving into your your story diving into your different mindset tips and, and hacks of of how you're able to persevere during some of these super long races and i, I have a feeling that people are going to want to connect with you they're going to want to follow along on your journey perhaps check out your your podcast or even
0: look into your coaching so where's the best place for people to connect with you yeah. First, thanks a bunch for having me on, Doug. It's been a blast chatting and yeah, hopefully your listeners find some valuable tidbits in there. <laughs> yeah. Happy to work with anyone who wants to check in on the podcast or on coaching. My kind of central hub where you can find everything from my social media channels, to so my coaching offerings, podcast details and things like that. It's just my website, which is zachbitter.com. Yeah. From there, you can link to everything. I'm most active on Instagram, which is just at zachbitter. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure to link all
1: that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that, that Zach said as far as some of the mindset hacks he uses to get himself through races. Maybe it was how he is able to use failure to his advantage. Maybe it was something that he said about like how he was able to keep going with his running career after he lost the world record. Maybe it was something that he shared as far as discipline. Whatever the takeaway was, make sure to tag Zach, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. I and mean, We once again thank you listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.